Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Nav M. Welcome to another hour of alternative viewpoints and lively discussion with today's most inspiring guests. So I'd like to start today's episode with a brief introduction to the subject matter of nomads. And nomadic lifestyle has been a key element of human civilization for thousands of years, largely due to an instinctive drive to begin new journeys. And it was around 15,000 years ago that our ancestors roamed the earth as hunter-gatherers in a constant search for more fertile land. And their movements were dictated largely by climate change, scarcity of resources, and also an innate sense of curiosity. And these early forms of lifestyle were the precursor to major population growth. And certain populations maintained nomadic lifestyles through extended periods of history, such as the Celtic tribes, which spread throughout Western Europe around 1500 BC, to the earliest occupants of the central Eurasian steppe, such as the Sumerians around 7000 BC. And interestingly, the word nomad originates from the Greek word nomas, meaning pasture seeker. But there is no universal method of actually describing nomadic life. So it's become an umbrella term to describe various wandering communities, such as gypsies, travelers, peddling groups, and more recently, digital nomads. And as a result of this, mobility and spatial context have redefined our understanding of the lives of mobile communities. For instance, in the modern context, nomadic travelers are now firmly established in an alternative culture called van dwelling or van life. And what this refers to is a social movement of nomadic individuals who reject conformity in favor of minimalism and a broad reassessment of their life values. And van dwelling represents an alternative approach to living because instead of sinking money into a home, people choose to convert their vans into living spaces. And this lifestyle is part of a countercultural movement which focuses on frugal living in order to take more control of one's life. And similarly, van life is also an escapist social media hashtag, very popular on Instagram, and is commonly associated with the millennial generation, essentially romanticizing the nomadic way of life, showing photo ops of people in their converted vans in front of scenic landscape. But let's not forget that there is an important distinction to note about van dwelling, which is that not everyone has a choice in the matter. And while some people choose van life for its vibrant and liberating appeal, others are forced into it for monetary reasons. And the reality of this lifestyle is very different from the picturesque version that we see on social media. And it's this focus on monetary reasons which is linked to my special guest today. Originally from Anchorage, Alaska, he's been living a nomadic life since the mid-1990s after going through a devastating divorce at the age of 40. And after paying child support and alimony, he found himself in a position where his take-home pay simply wasn't enough to pay for living expenses. And although economic circumstances forced him towards mobile living, he slowly adapted and learned to embrace his new lifestyle. 
Bob Wells is a leading exponent of the nomadic lifestyle and has become an inspirational figure to those individuals who've rejected the standard script of economic wealth and security for all. In other words, obtaining a job, raising a family, buying bigger houses, accumulating more consumer items, and essentially grinding the majority of one's life to enjoy a pitiful retirement. And here are some of his quotes. You're going to give away the 60 best years of your life for the 20 poorest years of your health. I've reached the conclusion after decades that the American dream is a nightmare and everyone that can should get out of it because true happiness lies on the other side. He offers practical advice on how to live a nomadic lifestyle through his website and YouTube channel cheaprvliving.com which currently has over half a million subscribers but the main audience on his channels are predominantly an older community those facing financial hardship people on social security and individuals finding themselves on the edge of homelessness particularly middle-aged women which interestingly mirrors the plot of the 2020 multi-Oscar winning film Nomadland about a grieving woman in her 60s who endures personal crisis after the recession of 2008, eventually becoming a van-dwelling nomad. Bob also features in the film playing a fictionalized version of his own character. But first, let's introduce Bob Wells, modern nomad, van-dweller, self-reliance teacher and YouTuber. Welcome to Good Morning Canada. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you, Bob, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak to me today. And we've got so much to discuss. I'd like to, firstly, I'd like to start with your background. So um, essentially, it's for those people of the audience who, who don't really know anything about you, and, and it provides a better picture of, of who you are. So if you could, please, Bob, just take us back to your life in Alaska in the 1990s and describe, if you will, the process that led up to living life in a van. Uh, well, first, let me say I have a, a strong affinity towards Canada. Uh, I've probably driven over the course of my life, driven the Alcan, Alaska, Canada Highway a dozen times. And uh, when I, I grew up in Alaska, and so, you know, Robert Frost and, and the tales of, the, of Dawson Creek and, and the gold rush there, I grew up with those. And so I just feel, I feel a really strong affinity with, with Canada. And so I'm, I'm grateful to be on, on your channel in Canada. Um, well, I was a really, really typical average uh, in, the in, in the 1990s, average American. I, I, made, uh, I made the exactly an average amount of money. I had a, a wife and two kids. And then I went through a divorce. And if you've been in the far north, it's expensive to live in the far north in Alaska or, or Canada. And so I found I couldn't live on the amount of money I was making and giving literally half of it to my ex-wife. I, I don't begrudge that. That was uh, my obligation. And I, I happily kept it. But uh, it left me, I didn't have to leave me enough to live on. So right. I, having grown up in the far north and in, uh, in Alaska, I being outdoors, hiking, backpacking, camping was just a normal routine part of my life. And so it occurred to me one day as I was driving to work one day and I drove past an, an old delivery van. It was a beat up old van. It had a box on the back. It's called a box van. And I thought, well, if I can live on a tent in a tent for months at a time, why couldn't I live in that box van? 
And so um, that would solve my money problems. If I didn't have to pay rent, I'd have had money left over at the end of the month instead of barely squeaking by. So uh, my next day to work on my way to work, I stopped, I looked at it, I bought it. And that night I threw, I threw a sleeping bag and a sleeping pad down in, uh, in that van. And on my new home was a rolling steel tent. And so that began my nomadic journey. And uh, at first it was, as you mentioned, I, well, I was going through a divorce and that's yep. just a, a horrible experience. Yeah. And uh, my first night in the van, I cried myself to sleep, uh, to be honest with you. A, you know, here I was going through the divorce. I felt like a failure. Uh, and then on, on top of that, you know, the fact that we were fighting over the kids and it, yep. divorce can be so horrible. And uh, let me just say mine has a happy ending. We, we got through all that and we, we really resolved it all really well. But that, um, and so above that, I couldn't even afford to, an apartment. I was essentially a homeless bum on the streets. And so I, my, I really felt uh, like a total loser by society standards, and uh, it was a, it was a very low point for my life. But I, little did I know, it was a turning point, and the best times of my life were ahead. Okay, Bob, I really appreciate that because um, you know, the, obviously, talking about very personal things, uh, especially divorce, is not easy, and. Uh, so you've given us an excellent insight there of how you started in the mid-1990s. And, and I'd just like to pick up on one point. Um, would you say that the, those camping skills and those outdoor skills that you um, essentially developed in the wilderness of Alaska, do you think that helped you in adapting to this new lifestyle? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, when, it, when I needed to cook, started to cook, cook meals in my van, well, I just bought a camp stove because I'd been camping on camp stoves, you know, for most of my life. And so there was nothing to it. I just, I bought a camp stove and a sleeping bag and a sleeping pad. And, um, and, and as time went along, I, I turned it into a pretty nice little home. But in the beginning, it was just, it was just a, a floor to sleep on. And I bought, I brought in some, um, the first thing I brought in was my recliner from home. I love right. the recliner. And for a while I slept in the recliner until right. I'd built a bed. And, and, uh, so yeah, being essentially one of the things I tell people, new people to being a nomad is you have to make a choice about your nomadic life. Are you going to try and duplicate an apartment on wheels, which a lot of people do, or are you going camping for the rest of your life? And those are two very different. They, uh, they, they look and feel very different. And, for me, because I loved camping, I knew I was just going camping for the rest of my life. And that was fine with me. And that's, that's an excellent point there, Bob, because um, it, it leads directly to, to my next point. Because um, in the documentary Without Bounds, you said that a nomad's life is a trade-off between comfort and security. So just explain that to the audience, because this goes to the heart of essentially of how nomads actually live their lives. It is. I, th I see all of, of human life can, can come down, be boiled down to an, a simple equation. You have comfort and you have freedom. The more comfort you have, the less freedom you have. And if you want nearly total freedom, well, you just start off with, uh, with almost nothing. And you have nothing to lose and nothing to restrict you. Uh, 
So if I, I have a friend who lives in a Toyota Prius, gets 50 miles to the gallon. Well, if, if she wants to drive a thousand miles, she can afford to drive a thousand miles because she's getting 50 miles to the gallon. And on the other hand, I have friends who live in RVs that get five miles to the gallon. And so if they want to drive a thousand miles, they got to stop and think about it because that's going to be hundreds and hundreds of dollars in gas. Correct. So their freedom, they have this enormous comfort in the RV, but their freedom is restricted by the sheer size of the thing and the gas mileage and how hard it is to drive, how hard it is to find a camp to park. So in virtually all of life, you know, 90% of your audience is just average Canadians living going to work every day and they have a, a huge amount of comfort in their home but to pay for that home they ha- and it's very very comfortable it's wonderful but to pay for that home they have to have a boss and that boss now controls their lives tells them where they're going to be five days a week your boss tells you where you're going to be he's going to tell you how long you're going to spend there what you're going to do while you're there if you decide you want to take two weeks vacation you got to go hit and ask and beg practically correct so you, you've got this eno- wonderfully comfortable home, but you have traded off essentially all of your freedom for that home. And to most of them, that's a great trade. Uh, to some of us, it is a terrible trade. That's true. Okay, Bob, let's, let's um, and, and I really appreciate that for um, explaining that because uh, unless someone actually... Um, explains it in that process that it's very difficult to understand exactly what a nomad's life is and, and the choices they face. But let's let's quickly move on. So in 2005, you set up your website, cheaprvliving.com, which was designed primarily to help others uh, in a similar situation that, that you found yourself in. But let's briefly go back to that interim period between 95 and 2005. How did you go from essentially being a survivalist in a van to someone who wanted to reach out to others and, and uh, advise them and teach them about the things that you, you'd learned? Well, over a period of time, and I, I don't remember exactly the time, how long it took or the months or years or anything, but I started out, as I said, really feeling ashamed of, of living in my van. Right. And it was very uncomfortable. It was going into winter, in fact, so I spent... Uh, I spent six years living in a van in Anchorage, Alaska, and those of you in Canada who know all about cold, and this is the far north where it's very cold, uh, you know how uncomfortable that can be. So, um, and imagine living in a van when it's 30 below, and I've I've done that routinely. So, uh, at first it was awful, but it steadily became better until I finally fell in love with it. And... um, I loved the freedom I had. I loved that every payday, I kept every single paycheck, and that at the first of the month, I didn't pay a landlord. I didn't have a lord over my life who demanded money from me at the first of every month. Correct. And so uh, that was that was by far the best part. Is I went from not able to survive, literally not able to survive on the money I made, to having extra money at the in my pocket at the end of every month to do anything I wanted with. And so I fell in love with it as a life, and I steadily realized that for the first time in my life, I was happy. I was contented. I had found peace of mind. 
And I looked around at all the guys I worked with. I, I worked in a grocery store. So I worked with, you know, there were probably a hundred other people at that store working. And I knew probably half of them fairly well as friends. And um, none of them liked their life. None yep. of them were living a life they wanted. They were just going to a job they didn't like because they needed some money. And they were going to do it for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And um, I, I wanted to tell them that there was a better way. In fact, I did. You know, when, on our, our work times or out of work times, I, I told people I had found a life that I thought was a better way. And so that was why I started the website. There, I, I knew uh, there was a moment also on the website. I, was, I woke up one morning in a parking lot, which is where I slept almost every night. And beside, but on the, it was October and if October in the North is, um, there was frost on the windshield and it was cold. It was below freezing. And I looked through the, uh, through the window and there was a woman with three kids. Right. And I thought to myself, what terrible circumstances would bring a woman to be sleeping in her car at at below freezing temperatures, uh, in the middle of an Alaskan winter. And, um, you know how I just, as a parent, I knew how, how devastating to see your children in that situation, how devastating that would be. And I thought, I have an answer for this woman. I can, whatever her life circumstances are that brought her to that moment, I have an answer for her. And yet I, you know, I wasn't going to go knock on her door and tell her, Hey, I've got an answer for you. Um, I just drove away, but, uh, I just, um, I have an urge to tell people there's a different, better way. You don't have to work at a job you hate for 40 years and then to die a year later, never having enjoyed your life. No one should, no one should experience that. Okay, Bob. Um, that is an incredible account, basically. And um, so let, let's just fast forward now to 2008, um, because that's when the financial crisis hit and consequently, there was a global recession, but in a way, this provided a solid platform for you to amplify your message, to get your message out to, to more and more people. So I'd just like to very briefly uh, just ask you, you know, in those early days, what was it like um, essentially building critical mass for cheaprvliving.com. What was it like? Did you, uh, was it a lot of uh, outreach networking or was it, you know, just answering email inquiries? I just want to get an idea of what it was like in those early days. Well, from, two, like you said, I started the website in 2005 and in 2008 when yeah. the, the, uh, the Great Recession hit, yeah. uh, people were losing their jobs. They were faced living on very low income. So they, they, they lost their apartments, they moved in together, and then whole families, uh, extended families would lose their jobs and lose their apartments. So there were a lot of people who were all of a sudden going to Google and searching, how do I live on really cheaply? How do I live on a budget? Um, and so, and how do I live in my car? Because a lot of people knew their only way out was to start living in their car or their van or their pickup. And so when they typed that in to Google, at the time, there was no one else. I was the only cheaprvliving.com right. was about it. There was almost nothing else. Van life didn't exist yet. In yeah. fact, I believe van life came about because of 2008. It was the, the uh, instigator 
Correct. Of a lot of young people saying that having seen uh, the Great Recession said, I don't trust this society. I'm going to do something different. Um, but that's, that's another discussion. So uh, when they, when they ha- Googled, how do I live on a budget? How do I live in my car? How do I live in my truck? My page came up. And right. so I was just inundated. I mean, yeah. inundated with with visitors and emails. My email is right on the on the homepage of my website. Yeah. And I encourage people to email me. And at the time, I was encouraging them to come and camp with me. I had to stop doing that. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were just too many of them. They couldn't all come and camp with me. But That's they can true. still email me. My email address is still there. They can yeah. email me at any time and still do. Um, and so, yeah, the website exploded. On the homepage of my website, I have a budget for $500 a month and a budget yep. for $1,000 a month. So if you know, need to know how you can live on almost no money, I have an answer there for you. I, I like to think of myself as in the hope-providing business. If you are lost and hopeless and money is uh, is a disaster for you, I think I have a way forward and I have hope for you. Okay, Bob. So I, I mean, obviously I've done a lot of research on yourself and, and I know, but for people who've heard this for the first time, it, it really is a profound story because it's so captivating and let's just move on now after 2008. So um, the, the website started essentially uh, gathering critical mass and in 2016, you created the RTR, which was, which is uh, the Robert Trump rendezvous. And this takes place in Quartzsite, Arizona in January of each year. And my question is this, how did this come about? And in your view, what was the significance of creating a community building event for nomads? Well, no, really, actually, it started in 2011. The, okay. first, uh, the first RTR was in 2011. Okay, um, sorry. It was uh, one of the things... It, if you're if you're out alone and lonely, that is not a high quality life. Right. And so, uh, when I say I offer people hope, I'm not offering them a hope of just barely surviving and and just as miserable life as you had before. If you're going to live in misery, just stay where you are. I want yeah. people to have a, a higher quality of life than they ever had before. And part of a high quality life is connections to other human beings. I mean, you just we just have to have it. We're pack animals. There's no other way to look at it. And so I wanted to create a, a central meeting place where nomads could gather and meet each other. The go- I, I did teaching then. I always have. Right. At all the, all the RTRs, we have a teaching session so new people can learn and get their feet under them. But 90% of the goal was just to camp together with new people, make friends, build bonds, and um, that alone would be an utterly life-changing experience. And, I, and it was. I really I believe it was and is and continues to be. And so uh, it was all about building community, and we've continued ever since. And um, it's actually gotten quite large. Okay. And, and another aspect of, of your work uh, is the Home on Wheels Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization. Uh, and I believe that's now in charge of the, the RTI. Um, just briefly explain for us what, what that organization does, because this is, um, is, is I, I find this wonderful, the, the way you directly help um, new nomads and existing nomads as well. Yeah, I, you know, there are, part of letting getting my email address out there is 
people who are in desperate need write me and with the hope that I will directly help them. You know, they want to know how they, they don't, I, you know, people write me and tell me they, they don't even have a car, but they, they, they've lost their apartment. How can they be a nomad? And of course I don't have an answer. There's, there's no answer. You've got to have something. Uh, so I wanted to uh, create an organization where we could all pool our money. Some of us are, are really poor. Some of us have extra money. And so uh, if we pooled our resources, we could help each other and help new people. And, but we couldn't do it alone, but we could do it together. Uh, that's essentially, that's the way humans work. We work best when we work together. And so I created Homes and Wheels Alliance of my co-founder, Sue Ann Carlson and I. Uh, I could not have done it without her. I couldn't have done it without my assistant, KC, or um, our other assistant, Phyllis. Those are the, 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 the legs that hold this organization up. And, um, and it's done amazing work. We've given away, so we have, a, um, we have an emergency fund that any yeah. nomad who's on the road that you all of a sudden you've got a breakdown, you need a new, you need new brakes, you need new tires, something's failed. Uh, you contact us. We have a, a bit of vetting we do to verify things. And once everything is, is uh, sat, we're satisfied, we have uh, given out over $35,000 to nomads in need and, and all in, in small amounts. So yeah. all those nomads uh, are, are their lives. They feel, safer and more secure knowing that someone out there cares about them and will help them in a moment of need. So that's the whole idea, just uh, taking care of each other. And, you know, that, that uh, the way you actually reach out to people and, and, and uh, help them directly it, it is just um, an amazing act of charity, basically, and, and connection with um not just nomads, but just connecting with your fellow community, which that and that that aspect of it, the way you're giving out um, vehicles which are ready made for nomads, you know, I, f- I find that so incredible. So, Bob, let's just quickly move on. Um, one interpretation, uh, and, and we mentioned this very very briefly earlier on. Uh, one interpretation of the van dwelling community as is that it represents. Um, a new social order, and, and I just wanted to get your um, your thoughts on this because basically, you know, there's different ways of describing uh, nomads. I mean, they've certainly got a social structure, social relations. Uh, would you agree with that assessment that, that the van dwelling community is a, a new social order? I'm not 100% sure it is, but I hope it is. Um, more than that, I think that, yes, I think what happened in 2008 when we really saw the explosion of the van life movement, the, the, digi- the young digital nomads of, uh, and international travelers, is people became very disenchanted and, and have lost a lot of their trust and hope in government and in the institutions that we count on to hold us together. A big one of those was two, there were two major impacts of i think the great recession um that- bob i'm just gonna have to ask you to hold that thought because we're just coming up to a short break now uh we are in conversation with bob wells and we'll see you in the in the next segment back soon
Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD, using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada. Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with your host, Navem. It's great to have your company. We are in conversation with Bob Wells. And Bob, just picking up on the previous point, we were talking about uh, the new nomads as, as a social order and you mentioned that um, point about 2008, where there, there was a basically a crack in the systems. If you could just carry on there. Well, I think it, it essentially was a, uh, a a new distrust towards government and business institutions. Uh, the idea that if you just uh, do everything we tell you to do, your golden years will be great and golden. And in, in, the, in the Great Recession of 2008, we saw that your home wasn't guaranteed to always go up in value and carry you through the rest of your life. We saw that companies could just all of a sudden uh, go to court and, and lose your, uh, you could lose your pension in, in the blink of an eye. You worked all your life, you were almost ready to retire, and boom, your pension's gone. That if you stayed and worked with a company for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, there may very well be nothing there at the end for you. They w- did, wouldn't hesitate to to move your company division to India, and then you'd be out of a job. Correct. Uh, and so this, we the American dream, the Canadian dream, depends on trust yeah. in the long term. That when I turn 60, 65, uh, things are going to be there, and I think that was lost. And so, particularly among the young, and they said. Um, I don't, I don't believe it anymore. If, if, if the, I can't trust the dream, can't trust uh, government institutions or, or business institutions, then I'll just live for the moment. And so I think that's what's going on. Uh, here we are in, in 2021, the great resignation. Yeah. I think it's the exact same thing. The, the pandemic just made people even more aware that you can't count on anything tomorrow. And you'd better live your life today, because if you're going to wait for 40 more years to live a life, you might miss entirely out. And I think people are finally realizing, I don't want to, this is my, this may be my only one truly wild, great life. I don't want to miss it. And so, 
it, being a nomad is really the only way to to step out of society and yet still be able to to survive and have a high quality of life. Okay, Bob. So I'm I'm just going to quickly come in here. So you, um, you've created essentially through the nomadic community a stable alternative, uh, especially in light of the chaos and upheaval of the recession of 2008. How do you see the van dwelling community uh, in your view developing in the next 20, 30 years? Well, based on what you've told us. All of my, uh, everything I have done is colored by climate change. Uh, right. The science is absolutely clear. Uh, if you have, you know, if you have any belief in science at all, and, you know, it's amazing how few people do anymore, then you know that a climate change, catastrophic climate change is upon us. If I lived in British Columbia, I would believe in climate change today. <laughs> Because look at the year they have had in British Columbia and, and all over the world. I mean, that's it's really evident in British Columbia. But my goodness, all over the world, the, the earth is in rebellion against its human enemy. And so um, I believe that the way forward will be nomadic. And yeah. that I, I actually believe I may have just been at the right place at the right time to be used to I hope, offer people a better way forward in life. You know, if, if where you're going to live can at any moment hit 120 degrees or, or have complete drought and then have a fire that burns your whole town down and then has a flood that shuts down the whole province or state, uh, maybe you'd be a better off if you could just get in your car and drive away and live somewhere else whenever you wanted to. And I think that's what the world is going to be seeing pretty quickly. Okay. And th there's a great deal of overlap um, with my next point now. Uh, everything that you've just dis discussed, there's uh, really, you know, deep, um, some very, very deep points there. And But what I'd like to focus on is the the challenges facing nomads. And historically, there's always been a desire uh, to control nomads and incorporate the incorporate them essentially into some type of national culture through a state agenda. And I'm just going to give you one example. So if we look at recent years in East Africa, um, particularly Kenya, the, we've seen the loss of land to national parks, game reserves, conservation areas, and this has severely affected uh, the nomadic way of life there. And my question is that, that you... Um, you operate uh, very closely with the Bureau of Land Management in the United States. So do you think something could similar could happen in the United States? And just briefly tell the audience what, what is the uh, Bureau of Land, land Management? Uh, well, in the United States, we have public U.S. public lands. And the two largest organizations that operate public lands um, are the U.S. Forest Service, um, and Bureau of Land Management. And the Forest Service does just what it sounds like. They operate national forests. And the Bureau of Land Management basically operates uh, worthless desert, <laughs> is kind of how I would describe it. Right. But it's all over. There's actually uh, BLM land in, in Alaska. So it's not just worthless desert, but it's it's once been, I've heard it described as land that no one else wants. Right. Uh, so it's just kind of worthless land that nobody wants. And so in the desert of the southwest of Arizona, which is a lot of Canadian snowbirds come and spend their winters, 
um, yes. is mostly is huge amounts of open BLM land, and you can just come and camp on it at any time. Now, in the summer, it's too hot. Uh, I can't imagine trying to stay here through the summer. And then we move north into national forests. Um, and where it's much, much cooler, you're in the national forest, it's going to be cooler. You're going to be in the shade. There's going to be water, rivers, streams, lakes, uh, and so forth. The only, uh, the only thing that I know of that's equivalent in, um, in Canada is BC has a lot of uh, crown land right. and uh, a lot of logging roads through British Columbia. And I've actually camped on some of them myself. And British Columbia has a ton of, of free equivalent public land for free camping. Okay. So that's so, okay. So just coming back to that question, Bob, um, I mean, just uh, again, we, we, uh, I mentioned that example of um, Kenya and there's other examples of sub-Saharan Africa that, you know, where millions of hectares of land of, uh, which have traditionally been used by uh, pastoralists, um, it's been lost to sedentary farming and conservation over the past 50 years. So the question, um, I'm just going to throw that question back at you again. So do you think something similar could happen in your view with, with the, the land that you cherish that, that, uh, the, from the Bureau of Land Management? There, there is a potential for problems. Um, it's illegal in the United States to reside on public land. It's for recreation only. Okay. And, uh, and it all depends on how you define recreation and having a residence. So uh, we, we always obey the rules. You know, the right. rules in the United States are uh, you can only be on in, it, it, the number varies 14 days. You can only be in one one place at one time for 14 days then you have to use move a certain amount of, of miles it's usually around 25 to 28 miles and then you can camp there for another 14 days um and, and so we we always obey the rules and so i i don't think of us as residing i mean if you move every 14 days every a minimum of 28 miles then you're not you're not really living on the land because you're moving constantly but they can argue, and they have argued, that because you stay on the land, you're setting up residence. Okay. And I think that will eventually, uh, if they push it, then eventually that will take a court decision. Um, okay. And, and one possible answer to that could be the, the LTVA, which is the long-term visitor area, because at the moment... Um, uh, I mean, the, the hope is that you, you can stay on that for, for up to seven months. Is that, is that correct? Yes. Uh, on BLM land, uh, Bureau of Land Management, there are areas designated as LTVAs. That stands for long-term visitor area. And you can, for $180, you can stay there for seven months. And you can actually stay there over in the, in the summer, but uh, it's just too hot. I don't know why anyone would, but you can't. Yeah, you, and then you just have to pay or keep moving. Okay, um, there, there's also another uh, interesting point, Bob. I, was, I mean, there's if we look at the demographics of a lot of the people who um, who go to the BLM lands, um, and this this is um, uh, maybe you can basically enlighten me on this because a lot. 
the, the main uh, demographic for people who use RVs is uh, essentially the um, the baby boomers uh, and the generation next. So essentially, we're talking about people from the age of forty to sixty five. But interestingly, the millennial generation they they don't seem to be taking over. So my uh, the point in asking that question was it, as a challenge to nomads is that um, maybe the BLM might think that you know it's not economically viable if if there's not enough um, baby boomers um, and they're not being replaced by millennials. What do you think of that? Well, the uh, the LTVAs are still full, right? And so they're not. Yeah, in fact, uh, I would say there's no shortage of people in them. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that would be an issue. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens in the future. Uh, in fact, no, there's clearly more and more peop- nomads living on uh, and re- on rec- having recreation year-round on public land than ever have been before. So I don't think it will ever be an issue there's not enough. Okay. I think the issue will be there's too many. And they'll right. say there's so many of you, we're going to have to crack down. Okay. So let, let's turn to another uh, challenge uh, facing nomads, and uh, let's just uh, put this inverted commas now. Uh, it's called the marginalizing of nomads, um, and the reason I say that is because history is full of examples where nomads have been treated with fear and distrust, and, and we know um, that there are daily challenges faced by the van dwelling community and, and people who, who don't uh, who are not privy to, to the uh, the life of van dwellers that they wouldn't really know about this. But for instance, let's mention personal safety in vans, uh, the issue of stealth parking. Um, so I, I'd like to get your views on on, on these issues. These are real challenges uh, for nomads getting the knock on the door, getting the knock on the van. <laughs> I would say yes and no. One of the issues I have, um, I haven't experienced myself, but I know other nomads have, yep. is there will be locals. You know, we tend to go to the same places. That's one of the problems, one of the things we do wrong. Right. And so if we keep going to the same places, then the locals get to know that, and some of them get angry. Right. Because, you know, they're, they have to go to work. They have to pay their rent. They have to pay their taxes. What's so special about you that you don't have to? Well, they don't have to either. They can become nomads, but they don't want to. Correct. And but at any rate, it makes it makes a certain segment of the population angry. I think more jealous. Yeah. But they'll it comes out as anger. And so I have actually heard of um, nomads who have uh, the locals have come out and not assaulted them, but made their lives uncomfortable. So that does happen. Uh, the key there, the ant, there's an easy solution. Just don't camp close to towns. If yeah. you're never close to a town, there won't be locals that know you're there and come out and hassle you. But we like to, you know, it's human nature to camp close to a town so you can go to town easy. And that's what we tend to do too much of. So there's a risk um, from from being a nomad and getting, you know, negative attention from the community. Correct. Okay. So... You've mentioned previously about the van dwelling community that it's like a big tent of people um, and essentially it's various groups sharing a back-to-basics philosophy. But I'd like to draw your attention to a distinction between two of these groups. Um, The first one is van lifers and there is a tendency to highlight uh, nomadism through a cinematic lens and and, and we've all seen the, the, the red sunset pictures on Instagram but to my view, this only represents one side of the story. And 
van dwellers on the opposite side these especially the groups that you represent they're struggling with real financial hardship and um when they arrived at this lifestyle for the majority of them there really is no going back and i'm not saying that you know there's a divide or there's contentious issue between these two groups but it, it does seem to me there's a very short-term view versus a long-term view and i'd like you to address this issue do you think that's a fair point well you know i there's a tendency among humans to be snobs and <laughs> my way is the right way and if you're not doing it my way you're doing it the wrong way so uh, the the van lifers tend to have expensive uh, vans uh, that are very very nice that generally very expensive. Yeah. And so uh, and on the other hand, you know the older older lower socioeconomic group tend to have you know kind of older beat up crappy vans. And so yeah. um, on one hand, you know there's people who tend to look down because you're in an older beat up crappy van or and, and on the other hand, there's a reverse snobbery of, well, yeah, but you just, you know, you're just a pretender because you yeah. spend all the money on this van and and uh, you don't really love the life and you're still doing more harm to the environment. And I'm I'm better than you are because I am in an old crappy van. It's right. just kind of human nature. Uh, but I think we need to find our commonality. You know, we find that we just find that in every element of our society here especially here in America, this, this extreme divide over every issue. We, we've got to find what we have in common. And I, that's one of my goals is to, to try and as much as I can bring the different communities together. But I, it's just kind of human nature to want to divide along common lines. No, that's, that's absolutely true. But uh, the way I looked at it was that um, van life essentially uh, it's a chosen option whereas van dwelling is a is a forced option you know for monetary reasons but again um, let, let's not you know try and divide the issue but essentially both of them are an alternative lifestyle but let, let's move on now Bob um, so I'd like to turn your attention now to the 2020 film Nomadland which was directed by Chloe Zhao and it was based on the book of the same name written by Jessica Bruder and you played yourself in the film alongside other real-life nomads. But first, I'd like to revisit a point that you mentioned uh, in another interview, and I quote, um, it's essentially it's about van lifers and van dwellers, and it just picks up on what we just discussed. They're not chasing healing from grief. That's not yet part of their journey. I think they don't know it, but the lifestyle is an inoculation against the grief that is to come. For most young people, they haven't experienced it yet. So um, this this is a very unique um, element to this discussion um, because you're referring to two types of nomadic lifestyle, van lifers, uh, essentially uh, their, their whole existence is about joy and adventure, um, whereas van dwellers, they're already addressing the grief, the pain and the loss and I just, I want to ask you, I mean, would, would you agree with that? Well, I must agree with it since I, apparently I said it. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Uh, uh, you know, young people in this, in our modern society, we are so, um, we're kept safe from death. We don't see it. We fight it. It Correct. doesn't even happen in our lives very much. I, I grew up and never, I never saw a dead body in, until I was older. And so, 
we're really kind of separated from grief in a lot of ways and and sorrow. Uh, we we have a we have a cult. Modern society is a cult of comfort and uh, of, of just not having any problems in our life, and that's that is a that is a terrible terrible thing to pursue. You humans need hardship. They need they need to struggle. Uh, that's what we're here for. So uh, I think it does inoculate in a sense that you're you begin to reconnect to nature and Correct. you begin to um, uh, you you struggle with discomfort. You actually have some discomfort in your life. When it gets hot, you're hot. When it gets cold, you're cold. Uh, and you you can mitigate that as much as you can, but it's 100 degrees outside. The van's going to be pretty darn hot. So yeah. you you start to understand that life isn't um, just this easy, comfortable prison of a house that we've always lived in, that uh, there's more to it. Yeah, and, and I think um, it reinforces, the, you know, the conversation that we had previously that um, – you know, there's this uh, very commonality between uh, a short-term approach by one group of nomads and, and a long-term approach. Um, essentially, uh, you know, to the younger people, joy is a, is a very brief moment. But for the older community, grief is a very long-term process and is something that, that lives with you um, for a very long time. And, and, and you, you know, you can't really escape it. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, I think the way you've described it, I, th- I think that, that really puts it into perspective. So, uh, Bob, I'd like to turn your attention now to uh, the issue of healing, um, which is an integral part of your work done through uh, your YouTube channel and also um, your website. And you've said many times that your nomadic life has been dedicated to helping others and offering a service. And when we look at the film Nomadland, uh, healing is a very important element of the wider story. And uh, I just want to take you back uh, to that film. There's a very touching scene in the film where you talk about the death of your son with the lead actress, uh, Frances McDormand, and how you've uh, kept this particular issue of your personal life under wraps for many, many years. And I'm just going to provide a, a brief quote. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. I've met hundreds of people out here who don't ever say a final goodbye. It's just, I'll see you down the road, and I do, whether it's a month or a year or sometimes a year. I see them again. And somewhere in my heart, I know that I'll see my son again. And, and this was a very deeply personal scene, something you know, which clearly took a great deal of courage to talk about. But it also shows that your own work, uh, everything that you've done over the last 25 years has, has masked the personal struggles that, that you've had to cope with for many years. And uh, I'd like you to address this issue of grief, loss and pain uh, that many of the nomadic community are, are carrying with them. Well, when you, um, you know, my loss of my son was so devastating that uh, for, for a very long time, uh, when I would wake up in the morning, um, I would ask myself, uh, why am I alive on this earth when my son isn't? And I didn't have an answer. And so I, I needed an answer. If I was going to keep waking up, I, I needed an answer. I needed a good answer, a, a sufficient answer to, 
to wake up another day. And I decided that my I was already very much inclined that way. My work was already very much inclined towards helping others, making others' lives better. But I, I pretty much just made the commitment that maybe maybe I wouldn't wake up another day for me, but I would wake up another day for anyone I could help. And so to me, it was just a, a commitment to be of as much value and service to as many others as I possibly could. That, uh, others who were, you know, going through their own battle with grief of whatever kind it was, whether it was just grief from from loss, like I was going through, or or in the movie, the fictional character she Francis played was going through the grief of a loss, um, or or just loss of hope. Yeah, uh, you know, I could I could always offer people hope. And I didn't, you know, I could do that in my own unique way that I had been called to. And so I felt like I'd been called and given a purpose. And that was enough reason every day to get up and wake up and, and to begin again. And so I'm always careful to keep track uh, day and night. Uh, am I spreading hope? Am I... Was it worth waking up another day today? Did I do something that brought hope and and re, and healing and relief to another human being? And if I go very long without <clears throat> without saying yes to that, then I'm concerned, and I I know I'm not following the right path. And so <clears throat> that's what my life has been for the last decade or two. Okay, so I'm just going to quickly pick up on one point there, Bob, that you mentioned about hope, and it's directly related. Um, and first of all, thank you for sharing those very, very um, intimate thoughts. Um, it's, it's greatly appreciated. Um, so let, let's just move on to the American dream, because uh, we're very shortly running out of time now. So uh, as a movie, Nomadland captures nomadic life so well in terms of the, the grief and the loss that we've discussed, but... Um, it also picks up on the period after the recession of 2008, uh, where many people in the U.S. began to essentially re-examine the American dream and what it actually meant. And what I'd, my question is, is, what is your interpretation of the American dream? Well, my, my understanding of the American dream today is it's just a trick right. uh, to, turn, to, turn, to stop people from thinking in terms of their own well-being into the well-being of society as a whole, and that that is really just an illusion uh, to, to being the well-being of the very few at the top who have taken over society and bought uh, society as a whole. So um, I think we need to, we are pack animals. We, we must live as a society and as a group. But I think we have really miss the way in that we're not a society and a group anymore. We're a very tiny group at the top who have taken it over, who have managed to accumulate the power and the wealth so that we're serving them instead of the government serving us. And uh, that's how the American dream has become a nightmare. Okay, and th- this is such an interesting point because um, 
something else came to my attention, and uh, I'm sure you're aware of this, but Woody Guthrie was one of the most American, uh, sorry, one of the most famous American folk singers, and um, he had a very famous song, uh, This Land is Your Land, and um, there's a lot of similarities between your, your own life, your own journey. He also embarked on a nomadic lifestyle after facing a personal crisis. He traveled across the United States and eventually found himself in California. But the interesting thing is it was the boom and bust of his hometown, which uh, sensitized him almost to the suffering of the people. And in the same way, uh, you've also been very critical of, of this American dream. And I'd like to get your thoughts on on essentially what many people see as a broken American dream. Well, we have to find a balance between I and we. Yeah. Uh, we have we have made our lives so much about, we have the idea here in America <clears throat> of being good, productive citizens. And and we, we do have to work together and we do have to think in terms of of what's good for society as a whole because you know, we, we depend on each other, but in that process, we have lost the importance of the individual. And we, we scream about our, our personal rights. And yet we gladly take on the yoke of slavery to the dollar bill. You know, there are two kinds of tyranny. There's the tyranny of political tyranny where the politicians, and we've seen so much of that in, in the, in the 1900s of, of, communism and socialism and and uh, and the Nazis and so that's political tyranny but there's also a, a tyranny of the marketplace a tyranny of the dollar and and we we will fight to the death tooth and nail any kind of political tyranny and yet we gladly grab the yoke of of the, the tyranny of the dollar and put it on us and that we'll defend to the death our obligation to that tyranny. And I'm baffled by that. And so the, the American dream as it's presented is merely a a propaganda statement for the tyranny of the marketplace. And we're, we've fallen under the illusion that somehow by chasing a dollar and more and more stuff, uh, we have found freedom and happiness and it's, always empty and hollow and leaves us wanting more and we chase more and then we buy we get more credit cards and we go into more debt and then we're more in the, on, under the tyranny of the dollar and it just goes on and on and we our lives become empty wretched messes that, that's wonderful Bob and you, you've summed it up so well I'm just going to quickly uh, come in with uh, one uh, verse from Woody Guthrie's song This Land is Your Land um, and he states when the sun came shining and I was strolling and the wheat fields waving and the dust clouds rolling as the fog was lifting a voice was calling this land was made for you and me and essentially this sums up about everything about social inclusion and equality and in America that, that seems to be missing right now and it really speaks to the the spirit of optimism, um, uh, uh, which is characteristic of the nomadic lifestyle. So 
that's all we have time for today. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. A big, big thank you to my special guest, Bob Wells. You can find out more about his current work and projects by watching his YouTube channel, Cheap RV Living, or visit his website, CheapRVLiving.com. Thank you. I'll see you next time, Wednesdays, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.